We on? Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you. What a wonderful time of worship we've had already. Uh, that beautiful time of prayer that Linda led us in, that was amazing. God is in the house. The Spirit of God is here. He is working among us. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. It'll be on the screen. Let me read it. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. Does anyone experience any encouragement this morning in our, 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 our unity together in Christ Jesus? Or if any comfort from his love, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my friends, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I think what Paul means here is you've got to take this seriously. For it is God who works in you, God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these incredible words that Paul wrote to the Philippian church some 2,000 years ago. I thank you that those words have been preserved through the passage of time for us to be able to read and meditate on together this morning, that we might hear your voice through uh, what this scripture teaches us. And I pray, Lord, that we'd be strengthened together as we look at this passage. I pray that we'd be encouraged. I pray that we'd be challenged. I pray that we'd be built up 
I pray that we'd be convicted. Lord, whatever it is that you need to do in each person's life here this morning, I pray that you will do it. I thank you for this time we've already experienced together as we've been in worship, and I pray that that experience of your presence, that experience of your, of your ministry to us, to our souls, to our minds, to our bodies, to our relationships, to our circumstances would continue as we look at this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God is good. We are in week three of our Philippians series. Last week, we looked at the call to live a life of humility from this passage in Philippians 2, which, as David Brooks from the New York Times, I quoted him last week, columnist in the New York Times, said should be, humility should be number one on our moral bucket list. And I just want to go back to one thing he said, which I found so incredibly challenging. He writes, the years pass and it is easy to slip into a self-satisfied moral mediocrity. Does anyone know what he's talking about? You grade yourself on a forgiving curve, don't we all? although we tend to judge others more harshly, don't we? You figure as long as you're not obviously hurting anybody, people seem to like you, you must be okay. But you live in your quiet moments, I think, when you're alone, when you're contemplating things, you live with an unconscious boredom, separated from the deepest meaning of life and the highest moral joys. Gradually, a humiliating gap opens between your actual self and your desired self, or we might say between your actual self and the, the, the person, the self that Christ has called you to be. Now, so if you desire, I think, to grow in Christ, friends, if you want to progress in your calling to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, if you want to close that gap between your actual self and your desired self, the self that Christ has called you to be, then we must begin with humility. That's what we were talking about last week. Not with trying to improve ourselves, not by gritting our teeth, clenching our fists, and trying to make something happen, but by humility, by surrender, by uh, laying down our lives at the foot of the cross. So this takes us back to the central message of the book of Philippians. Philippians 1.21 to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think that is the sentence that summarizes the whole of the book of Philippians. Now, of course, Paul here is speaking about his actual death, as we talked about last week, since he's writing from prison, and at any moment he could be executed. But the truth is, this, this phrase, to die is gain, is actually something that we should all be able to say joyfully and with, thanks, with thankfulness. Because the call to follow Christ is the call to come and die. The call to follow Jesus and to live in his life, to live is Christ, that calling is a calling first to come and die. Right? And so all of us who follow Jesus have experienced this. This is what our baptism signifies. Mark 8, 34 to 35 is on the screen. This is what Jesus said. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, must humble themselves, and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me, for my sake, and for the gospel, will save it. 
Now, I have no doubt in my mind that Paul would have known those words, he would have heard those words, and he would have had those words in mind when he wrote, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Are you with me? Let's turn to the person next to you and say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the essence of discipleship. Now, as we all know, humility is a wonderful virtue. It's a wonderful virtue. I love humility, especially when I see it in other people. I think humility is fantastic when I experience it from others. But it grates on me when I have to step into it for myself. I uh, think of the great prayer that St. Augustine prayed in the fourth century when he felt God calling him to give his life to, to Christ. And he wrote this, or he prayed this, O Lord, make me good, make me good. Just not yet, just not yet. Now, I remember when I was, uh, I'd finished high school, I decided to take a gap year and I went to Bible college. I, I had just had an experience of Jesus that transformed my life and I wanted to figure out what it meant to be a disciple. So I dedicated some time to go off to figure that out, to study the Word and to get some experience in ministry. And I went off to this Bible college. Now, I'd come from uh, you know, high school where I'd been the school captain and I'd done pretty well at school and I thought pretty highly of myself. I felt like I had a really good future ahead of me. The world was my oyster. I was encouraged about what the future held for me. And I went to college and uh, it came time for us to receive our internships. And I thought I was going to get one that was probably going to be public. I'd have some kind of public ministry role. You know, I, clearly people would have already recognized that God had called me, that he had his anointing on my life and that this is what lay ahead for me. I got my internship and my internship was to go for the first several weeks down into the darkest corner of the building where they kept all the old VHS tapes. Does anyone remember what they are? And I had to sort, catalogue, and label them. That was my ministry internship, which I did for about four months. Every single time I was down in that dark cupboard, sorting out VHS tapes, creating... I'm not very good at administration, so this was stretching me in all kinds of directions, but actually catalogue things, and then label them and put them where they belong, Wow, that was something else. But I was complaining the whole time, God, why have you put me here? This is not where I should be. This isn't where I should be. This is not my calling. You know, I remember the Lord said to me so clearly, guess what he said? This is exactly where you need to be. <laughs> this is exactly where you need to be. That was a hard lesson. I love humility, especially in other people. It grates on our sinful nature. It pushes, it rubs against the grain, doesn't it? Not only of ourselves, but our whole culture as well. And we can immediately think of a whole bunch of reasons why humility is a bad idea. It might lead us to being walked all over, treated like a doormat, overlooked, undervalued, seen as a soft touch, seen as weak. I mean, no one wants to look weak, do they? But humility is not weakness. Because if we're following the way of Christ... What is God's promise to us that in your weakness, my strength, God's strength, is made perfect? In your weakness, 
God's strength is made perfect. And it's far better, in my experience, to humble ourselves willingly rather than wait for the circumstances of life to humble us. As we read last week, 1 Peter, and it's also said in James, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under his mighty hand, that he will raise you up in due time. God knows what he's doing with you. Humility is not the path of destruction. Humility is the path of life, because humility says, God, I trust what you're doing with my life, and I'll let you be in charge of the process. Now, that's very difficult. Does anyone find that difficult? Handing the reins of our lives over to God and saying, Lord, I trust the process. I trust what you're doing. Man, is that ever hard. But humility is not weakness. And according to Paul, humility is a life that values others above ourselves. And of course, we do that for our kids. We do that for our family. We do that for our friends, for people we love. Rarely do we do it for strangers, although we, of course, celebrate those occasional stories of the Good Samaritan. We celebrate them because they are exceptional, they're unusual. But imagine if we lived in the kind of culture where th this was the foundational virtue that all of us lived into. Imagine if we lived in a society where everyone was pursuing humility. That would be an incredible place to live, where everyone was seeking to value others above themselves. Wouldn't that be an incredible culture to be part of? Well, guess what? If that's what we want to see, where does it have to begin? We can't wait for it to begin in others. It's got to begin with us. And Paul is writing to the church, which means that we, as Christ's body, we get to go first. We get to be the ones who model this to the rest of our culture in hope that it will bring transformation to everyone around us, to the lives of the people around us. It may seem impossible, but that's kind of the point of the gospel, isn't it? That it didn't begin with us, it begins with Jesus, and we're now called to follow in his footsteps. This is the way of Christ. This is the way of Christ. Is it inconvenient? Absolutely. But will it be worth it? Yes and amen. And I guess the question is, what kind of church do you want to be part of? You know, what kind of community do you want to contribute to? Do you want to be part of a church or a community where everyone's just in it for themselves, where we're only looking after our own interests? But what if we were part of a church, and I've seen evidence of this all over our church, so um, obviously we have some growing to do, but I've seen this modeled in our own community, but imagine if we were the kind of people that were doggedly and determined to pursue the best in others, to value others above ourselves, to so not just be in it for what we can get, but for what we can give. Now, why would we do this? Because it is the way of Jesus. And what Paul does here is he explicitly links this call to humility to the gospel, and particularly to the death of Jesus on the cross. So verse 5, he writes, in your relationships, this, so this is how you should live with one another. If we could actually go back to Philippians uh, 2, just verse 5. On the slides, that would be amazing. He writes this, in your relationship. So now Paul is explicitly linking the ministry of Jesus to how we will treat each other. He's explicitly linking the message of the cross to how we will live with and for one another. In your relationships, have this same attitude that Christ Jesus had, who being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to use to his own advantage. Jesus could have, of course he could, but how did Jesus model his equality with God? Paul writes, rather he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Literally, it's doulos, a slave. Taking on the nature of a slave and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, some theologians believe that this statement that Paul is making here is actually a quotation of a hymn that would have been sung or said by the church uh, at that time. And it, but this little insertion, by becoming obedient to death, and it seems like Paul writes in there, even death on a cross. Like, this is shocking how far Jesus was willing to go. The New Testament scholar Fleming Rutledge writes in her book, The Crucifixion, uh, this is the quote I have, yes, thank you, this is the most profound statement about Jesus in the New Testament. That God became a slave and obedient to death, even death on a cross. There's lots of religions where their gods are dying and rising again. There is no other religion in the world where the God that we worship willingly became a slave and became obedient to death and such a humiliating and degrading death at that death on a cross. This is completely unique. The eternal Son of God, who is equal with the Father, took on the form of a slave and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? When Jesus didn't do this to satisfy some need within himself, to fix something lacking in his own soul. He didn't do this to become a more self-actualized person. He didn't do it to gain anything for himself. He did it for us. It's all pure gift. Pure gift. And if that, friends, isn't humbling, if this doesn't draw us to our knees, and I don't know what will, that God, the creator of the universe, humbles himself before us in one of the most unimaginable deaths on a cross, Paul adds, why? And Fleming Rutledge goes on to say this, crucifixion was supposed to be seen by as many people as possible. That was the point of it. Debasement resulting from public humiliation was a chief feature of the method, along with the prolonging of agony. It was a form of advertisement or public announcement. This person is the scum of the earth, not fit to live, more like an insect than a human being. The crucified wretch was pinned up like a specimen. Crosses were not placed out in the open for convenience or sanitation, but for maximum public exposure." And this is what Jesus was willing to do for us. But the point she's making here, what Fleming Rutledge is making, is that this was a way for the Roman Empire, and particularly for Caesar himself, to reinforce to all his subjects that we are the ones with the power. We're the ones with the power because look what we can do to someone if we want to. It was a form of advertisement. It was propaganda. So consider then what Jesus is doing by willingly being crushed by this terrifying symbol of Roman power. He's taking on this gross form of advertising and then completely overturning the message that's being communicated. He's completely inverting the message that the cross communicated to people in the ancient world. So his greatest humiliation, his greatest defeat, the moment Jesus humbles himself to the point of death now becomes the moment of his greatest 
victory now becomes the moment of his greatest victory. And there, so Paul writes, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That exaltation is in response to his willing humiliation. This moment of apparent defeat becomes the moment of God's greatest victory over the powers that have taken control of the world from the very beginning. That's why Paul writes in Romans that in this moment when Jesus is crucified, he is He's actually setting the powers up for public humiliation and he's triumphing over them by the cross. What looks like God's defeat is actually the moment when God is stripping and humiliating the powers that have degraded us from the beginning. It's all back to front. So for the early Christians, the cross then stopped being an advertisement of the overwhelming power and terror of the Roman Empire and became a beautiful symbol of the overwhelming love and power and grace of the kingdom of God. Are you with me? That's why the cross then for the Christians was the greatest sign of hope. And yet in the preaching of the message of the cross, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that it's foolishness to the Greeks, like the Gentiles. They just don't get it. Why would you worship a God who was crucified on a Roman cross? It makes no sense. And they were mercilessly merciful mercilessly mocked for this. And yet, the Christians owned it. They made it their own. It became their symbol. This is the sign of love. This is the sign of victory. This is God saying, Caesar, you think you have power, just you wait till you see mine. This is God saying, the Romans declare boldly, scandalously, that their kingdom will remain forever, but there is only one kingdom that will remain forever, the kingdom of God centered on the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus won this victory, not because he came with overwhelming force to defeat his enemies, but because he came with humility. And this is what we've just got to get into our thinking. We've got to let this get under our skin. Because it goes against everything we feel is right sometimes that we want to seek after our own advantage. And this is how we're discipled in our culture. Pursue the best you that you possibly can. Get the best education, go for the best career, make as much money as you can, marry up, buy in a good area, have, you know, have as many kids as you need to have or want to have. All of these signs of a good life that we're discipled from almost the day we're born to pursue and to long for. And yet the kingdom of God inverts all of that and says, no, you humble yourself and you entrust your life and your future to the hand of Almighty God. And that is how we achieve victory. And that's true for each of us personally, but it's also true in terms of how we operate as a church. We're not going to see the kingdom of God advance by our own power or strategies or systems, but only by humility, only by weakness, only by prayer. It's all back to front. It's all upside down. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. That's how the kingdom of God operates. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. 
Now, it may seem like the proud are winning now, but in the fullness of time, in the coming kingdom of Jesus, which is why Paul says, on the day when Christ returns, I will not be ashamed. I will know I didn't run my race in vain because I'll see what it is that God did through you, even though you're weak and humble, especially because of your weakness and humility. Micah 6.8, what does the Lord require of you but that you act justly, you love mercy, and you walk humbly with your God? Now, the ancient world had never seen anything like this, had never seen a leader like Jesus. They didn't know on on earth what to do with all of this. Um, As I said, the Christians were mocked for their faith in a crucified God. And there are cartoons on walls in in ancient Roman cities where someone has scribbled. uh, I, I was looking for an image of it, but I couldn't find a decent one. But there's an image that someone has scratched into a into a stone wall that has a cross, a crucifix, and a person on it with a donkey's head. And someone's written that so and so person worships his god. Like the, the the Romans couldn't get their head around this idea that Christians would worship someone who was crucified. That makes literally no sense. And yet, this cross and this message and this promise has completely changed the world. Now, I want to thank Jess Hammond for drawing my attention to this. John Dixon has written a book called Humilitas, which explores all of this in greater detail, but I found a fantastic clip, which I want to play for you now, which just explains um, some of this from a historical point of view. Just have a look to the screen. What's so fascinating to me is the way that um, business leaders in recent years, and military leaders in fact, have started to talk about how important humility is in leadership. And when you think about it, this is something that Christians have been grappling with for 2,000 years. In ancient Rome and Greece, humility was not a virtue. The life of Jesus changed everything because Jesus came and said that true greatness consists in laying down your life for others. And and for me, perhaps the most incredible statement in all ancient literature on this topic is in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul, uh, quoting a hymn that the early Christians used, says that Jesus was in very nature God, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and then becoming obedient even to death. The most amazing thing about this statement is not so much that he describes Jesus as God, though that's extraordinary. It's that in the one breath, he can say, God, cross, God, cross. That the Lord of the universe would be pleased to lower himself to the most shameful point in the Roman world, a Roman cross. That turns the whole notion of leadership and of power upside down. The true Christian leader has that mind. It takes all of the gifts that we have, all of the powers invested in us from the spirit and from the church and turns them upside down and says true leadership is leadership that gives for the sake of the other all the way to a cross. It's extraordinary. The world's only just catching up with this, but we as Christian leaders ought to have the edge because we follow the one who is God who gave himself on a cross. One of the things that John Dixon says is that humility is not 
and we explored some of this last week, thinking less of yourself, downplaying your gifts, downplaying your abilities. He actually defines it as holding power for the sake of others. Holding power for the sake of others, using the gifts God has given you. Not downplaying them, not ignoring them, developing those gifts to the best that you possibly can. Resourcing yourself in the best way that you can in order that you might bring the best of yourself to the tasks that God has given you and that you might bless others with the best of who you are. And I think that is the way of Jesus, isn't it? He doesn't call us just to humble ourselves so that we can grovel in the dirt. He calls us to humble ourselves so that we might be raised up again in his power. Are you with me? We might bring his life into the world. It's not just, I want to crush you because you're a sinner and you're filthy. I want to bring you down in order to teach you a lesson. No, it's I want you to willingly humble yourself in order that you may lay aside your life and take up mine, which is going to be so much better for you, so much greater for you. And that's something that doesn't matter where God has placed you, um, what your career might be or what kind of network of relationships you might have, you can bring that wherever you are. You don't need to have the title reverend in front of your name in order to do this. You don't need to have gone to Bible college. All of us can step into humility. All we have to do is say, Lord, I humble myself before you. Teach me your ways. Help me to walk in your life. And I think, as Paul then will go on to say, do everything without grumbling or arguing. This in verse 14. In other words, stop trying to get your own way so that you may become blameless and pure, people of, with integrity, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then what does he say? Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. God wants your life to shine like a star in the sky. But the pathway to that is not for us to claim power for ourselves, but to hold on to the power of Christ in order that we might give it away to others, to humble ourselves, that he might raise us up. So I want you to just take a moment before we come to the communion table to think of someone you know in your own life who demonstrated this to you. Someone that you uh, have trusted over the years, a mentor, a leader, a friend, maybe it's one of your parents, Maybe it's even one of your children who have shown you something of, of what true humility looks like and that you have been changed because of that experience, that it's had a positive impact on your life. Just take a moment, close your eyes, think of someone who has invested in you in that way without ever needing anything in return. And now take a moment to give thanks to God for them for what they invested in you, which is a gift from his spirit. And now, if you're willing, just to pray this very simple prayer. Now, Lord, teach me, help me to go and do likewise. Amen. Because, friends, I believe the greatest apologetic we have for the gospel in our culture is not our great programs, wonderful church services, as beautiful as they might be. The greatest apologetic, that is the greatest sign that we have that 
demonstrates to our culture that Jesus Christ is alive is the church getting on with being the church. In other words, that we actually take seriously in our relationships with each other the practice of the way of Jesus. If we do that and we commit ourselves to it, that will change our culture. You can point to so many times throughout human history where small groups of Christians have dedicated themselves to love and service and prayer and humility, and they have changed their culture in their day. And I believe that we can do the same thing. Again, not for our own sake, but because this is what the gospel calls us to. And we want to see people experience the same love and the same grace and the same power and the same forgiveness and the same transformation that we have experienced in Christ Jesus, don't we? Do we want people to experience that love and that life? Yes, I believe we do. And the pathway to that is humility in our relationships having the same attitude of mind as Christ Jesus had. And the place to begin with that is with Jesus himself. So what we're going to do as we prepare ourselves to come to the communion table is I have just a prayer of confession that I'd like us to pray together on the screen. Now, um, in some traditions, we would say this all out loud together, so why don't we do that? I know that's maybe something that we haven't done very much of here, but this is a day for new things, isn't it? Amen. And I'm sure this is not the first time anyway. So, whatever. Take a moment to read it, just so that you're comfortable with what you're about to pray. And then in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to take a quiet moment just to confess your own sins, and then we'll pray these words together as we prepare ourselves for the bread and the wine. Confession is just simply an act of humility. And so let's pray these words together. Father eternal, giver of light and grace. We have sinned against you and against our neighbor in what we have thought, in what we have said and done, through ignorance, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault. We have offended your love and marred your image in us. We are sorry and repent of all our sins for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us Forgive us all that is past and lead us out from darkness to walk as children of light. Amen. Merciful God, your love compels us to come in. You're standing at the door of our hearts knocking. We open our hearts to you. Our hands were unclean. Our hearts were unprepared. We were not fit even to eat the crumbs from under your table. But you, Lord, are the God of our salvation, and you share your bread with sinners. So cleanse us and feed us with the precious body and blood of your Son, that he may live in us and we in him, and that we together, the whole company of Christ, may sit together and eat in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.